tonight, and you'll find our text on page 230 of the Chairback Bible that should be nearby you. If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Chairback Bibles to follow along. And as we continue our evening studies of select parts of the Old Testament, parts that not only point us to Jesus Christ in type and shadow, but also help us understand the warp and woof of Old Testament history. We're moving from the judges into the kings tonight, and we want to think together about this request that Israel makes of Samuel. So let me read all of chapter 8. It's 22 verses, and then I'll pray, and we'll continue together. So listen as God once again speaks to you through his word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me, and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. To be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give to it. Give it to his officers and to his servants, and he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No. But there shall be a king over us, that we may be also like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we do come to you tonight only through the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, knowing that we too often, like Israel, make requests of you, even demands of your leaders, 
that perhaps even though on the surface they look like they're full of wisdom, are so wrong-sided and even sinful. Let us know what it means to look to you with the eyes of faith this night, that by your Spirit you would strengthen us according to this word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that I have often loved to do with family members who are older in age and even church members who are older in age, especially those that are interested in reflecting on their life's history, is ask them questions about those generational shaping events that so often mark life here on earth. For example, I remember sitting down with my grandfather at one point and asking him, what were you doing when you found out that John F. Kennedy was assassinated? Or there's another member in our church once who I asked, what did you think about the Vietnam War so many years ago when it was raging over there in the East? Or asking other people, were you watching on TV when the Berlin Berlin Wall finally fell? Or even moving to more modern times, I suppose, future generations might ask us, well, what were you doing when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11th, 2001? I suppose you might have even wondered before that in the distant future, should the Lord tarry, someone might come to any of us. What did you think of that COVID pandemic in 2020 that interrupted the entire world? Uh, You know, as well as I do, there are are generation-defining events. There are uh, generation-shaping events. And there are also events, occasions, circumstances that shape not just generations, but as we'll see tonight, redemptive history as a whole. Because what we're going to see tonight in the course of 1 Samuel chapter 8 is a simple request, there's a lot underneath it, but it's a simple request that brings about a massive shift in the experience of God's people. Because of course, if you have been with us in recent weeks, we have been for a few weeks in this period of the Judges. You know, we picked up our story in the old gospel story series we've been in this evening, in this evening series over the recent months. You now we, we thought about the wilderness wanderings, and we thought about life as Moses and Joshua were leading the people. And then after Joshua died, we noticed how uh, the nation of Israel moved into this time period of being ruled by judges and, and students. You probably remember how that cycle of judges ensued. Uh, There would be a falling of Israel into sin and idolatry. God in his discipline would bring up an enemy to oppress his people. They would cry out for deliverance. He would raise up a judge and he would, that judge, he would lead faithfully. He would minister justice. Eventually he would die and then the cycle would repeat itself. And we last week looked at the story of Ruth, which of course was a story of God's providence and redemption, but a story that happened, you might remember, when there was no king in Israel. And we come tonight to consider, in our story of a king, which is our theme, uh, we come to consider how it was that the nation of Israel, that previously had not had any kings, even come to now have a monarch uh, leading them. And so what I want us to see from the verses in front of us today are four different things along the way about this story of a king. And the first thing I want to show you related to the request is the request's context. Uh, Just to make sure we remember that Samuel was a judge, if you look back at verse 15 of chapter 7, perhaps just a page before, a paragraph above in your Bible from tonight's text, you remember that Samuel is said to have judged Israel all the days of his life. So he was a prophet, he was also a judge in Israel, he was a righteous and faithful judge, and the problem now comes with the context of this request. Notice verse 1 of chapter 8, when Samuel became old, he made his sons 
judges over Israel. You'll see their names are Joel and Abijah. Uh, names that mean Yahweh is my God and the Lord is my Father, respectively. And as often happens with God's people throughout the ages, uh, they don't live up to their namesake, do they? And you'll see even we're told at the end of verse 3 that these two sons of Samuel turned aside after gain, they took bribes and perverted justice. And now kids, I hope that you understand what it means, this responsibility even of righteousness that you have to live up to a name. And I'm not thinking particularly here of your last name, as we might say to our children, you must live up to what it means to be a stone. Uh, You know that for those of you that have been baptized, you've been what? Baptized into the name, the triune name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That you are bearing that covenant name upon you and you must live up to it with faith and repentance. And one of the great tragedies that belongs to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament is they don't live up, do they, to their names. Isn't it one of the supreme mysteries, at least I've always thought it's a supreme mystery in the Old Testament, how you get these godly leaders that somehow beget all of these ungodly offspring that lead God's people astray. You wonder what perhaps might have been missing in Samuel's life that his sons were known as rotten, because that's the context of the request. Samuel, you're old. Your sons are rotten. Well, what about the content of the request? Look at verse 5. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So you'll you'll notice in verse 5, there there are two simple parts to the request. At least two things to single out. The first of which is they are asking, and this is significant, they are asking for a king. Remember, this is in the time period of the judges. Uh, You might have expected them to come to Samuel and say, hey, your days are soon going to be over. Uh, Your kids can't take the mantle of leadership as faithful judges in Israel. So, So give us another what? judge here in Israel. But they say, no, give us a king here in Israel. First time that's ever been requested in the life of God's people, but not just give us a king. You notice significantly, uh, they want a king to judge us like all the nations. And it's, it's here that you have to kind of wrestle with what all of the biblical information says about the request and where they've actually gone wrong in the request. Because it can be easy to think Give us a king to judge us like all the nations have kings to judge them. That the wrongness of the request locates itself primarily in the fact they want to be like the other nations. But, but I want you to see this, so we're going to do something we don't always do in the evening. Hold your hand in 1 Samuel 8 and flip over to Deuteronomy 17. Because I need you to see there is an Old Testament law, background of significance to the request that comes And students, what you want to think is, the Lord is not surprised that his people are requesting a king, nor is he surprised that his people are requesting a king like the nations. Because if you get your way to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, notice what the Lord says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You see, the king is expecting a request for a king, and a request for a king that's like the nations. 
But then actually the law makes quite clear that the kind of king that, that God is going to have over his people is quite unlike all the kings of the nations. If you just scan your eyes through those verses that follow in chapter 17, uh, a number of stipulations, as it were, that the Lord places upon the king that he would have over his people, one of which is a limited number of horses. Uh, Surely at the most basic level of military might, this means that the king in Israel is always only allowed to have a small army. Now, why is that significant? Because it's the Lord that's going to fight the battles for his people. As the psalmist will say, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but what? We trust in the name of the Lord. Goes on to, of course, limit the number of wives that he can have, lest he fall into idolatry, which spins itself out very much into the life of Israel's history. The end of verse 17 says, he shall not acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. It's limiting his wealth. It's limiting his riches. In every way, he's meant to be a king that is singularly dependent upon God. He's meant to be a king that's not like all the kings in the rest of the ancient Near Eastern world that were understood to be what? Deities living here on earth. Oh, they were to be servants, God's chosen kings. They're to be servants of Yahweh there in Israel. And so if you flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, what you see is actually the root problem in the request is the heart behind the request. Verse 6 tells us in 1 Samuel 8 that Samuel is displeased with this request. And then the Lord speaks clearly, doesn't he, to Samuel saying, Obey their voice in all that they say to you. Here's the problem, children. They have not rejected you, Samuel. Clearly, there seems to be some type of emotion of Samuel in this moment as though he's been rejected in the midst of his role of leadership. But Yahweh says they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I have brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So this is the context of the request. Samuel is old. His sons are unworthy. The content of the request is, we no longer want Yahweh to rule over us as king. Give us a king like all the other nations. And then what comes now in verse 10 through 18, the request's consequences. Consequences of this request. Uh, Some of you might have had the chance to uh, be around here throughout the week, and if you were in my office, it's quite likely that you would see a can of Diet Coke sitting on my desk. Because for better or worse, I drink Diet Coke. And uh, what that means is oftentimes throughout the week, I'm drinking a can of something that is nothing more than just a substitute, right? It's a substitute for the real thing, Coca-Cola. And so much of our life, if you go up and down grocery aisles full of substitutes, right? I mean, I grew up playing the sport of soccer. And that was at a time when uh, still, people would speak of soccer as though this substitute sport that Americans didn't recognize. Uh, we so often can fill our days with substitute teachers. There are substitute players in every sport. There are substitute foods for all kinds of ingredients along the way. If you, if you genuinely can see it, much of life here on earth, uh, we fill up with substitutes. And the only reason I tell you that is because in this request for a king, what Israel is actually requesting is a substitute king. And maybe you know that substitutes are never as good as the real thing. Substitutes even can wreak havoc 
on those who partake of them. Because notice verse 9. Yahweh says to Samuel, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So tell them the truth, Samuel. This is what it's going to be like when you get a king after your own heart, which is who Saul is ultimately going to be, the first king there in Israel. Now, just glance through verse 10 through 18. Kids, if, I, if you were paying attention as I read that, you might have noticed there was a particular verb that, that stood out by way of repetition all throughout this text. It's like when the Pevensey children come and ask what Aslan is like, and Mr. Beaver responds what he's like. Someone comes to Samuel and says, well, what's this king going to be like? Here's what he's going to be like, Samuel says. This is his warning about the request's consequences. He is going to take everything. Look at what he says. Verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who reigns over you. He will take Your sons, skip down to verse 13, he will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and give them to his servants. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards, give it to his officers and his servants. Verse 16, he will take your male servants, female servants, the best of your young men and donkeys and put them to his work. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and the conclusion of the consequence. Look at verse 17. And you shall be his slaves. And isn't it ironic that that a people that God had brought out of bondage and slavery in Egypt under an oppressive king. Now what do they want? To fall under the slave ship of another king. Here simply because they would not have God rule over them according to his law. And of course Samuel's warning goes unheeded. How many of you parents know that even when you can warn your children of the truth that will come along the way? That seems to far too often go unheeded. Verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said no. But there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Such is this story of A king. So the context, Samuel's old. His sons ought not follow him. The content, give us a king like all the other nations. The consequences, he's going to take everything from you. Well, what then about the conclusion to this request? I want to actually give you five things in conclusion as we come to the end together tonight. I want you to see a few lessons that I trust we're meant to see for our lives spiritually along the way with this simple request in Israel. Number one, our trust may be most in a method more than the maker. We may trust more in methods more than the maker. Uh, What was necessary for Israel to do at this moment in time was to repent of their wayward ways, to turn back to the Lord, not institute a new system of government, thinking that the method was going to be the solution to the problem, which was a need for godly leadership in the land, I suppose, among many other problems that needed to be answered in the land. I I do, I trust that many of you realize how in the church, how in godly homes, so oftentimes the answer that we are looking for is found in the Lord himself, and so often yet we, with this pragmatic sense, look to the world for its wisdom, thinking about its methods of success and how exactly those methods might apply best to us. 
and therefore bring us what we so desperately desire. It shows us number two, this passage, our sinful requests may be answered. Our sinful requests may be answered. You know, I've thought about that for for many years, and there are a few things more terrifying than the Lord may give us over to what we desire. And what we desire is actually not right. Uh, One of the kindest things that the Lord sometimes might do to us is listen to one of our requests and simply say no. Or not now. Or no, not in that way. He may answer our sinful requests. Number three, our rationality may be wrong. Our rationality may be wrong. If you look at the solution that the people of Israel, the elders there, uh, proposed, it was quite logical, wasn't it? It was quite rational. Hey, we've done this judge thing for a long time and it hasn't gone terribly well for us. Maybe we should be a, a nation that's ruled by kings. That seems to go well for the nations that are surrounding us. Uh, Many people today, consultants of ancient Israel, say, yeah, that's a good idea. But the rationality, the Lord says, it's wrong. Sometimes we might trust in our own wisdom. We might trust in our own logical ability too quickly. Number four, our aversion to holiness is what I wrote down. Our aversion to holiness. Uh, Israel was to be a singularly distinct kingdom in the world, weren't they? Uh, In In Exodus chapter 19, when God redeemed them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, what did he say to them? But I have called you to myself that you would be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for my own possession, a kingdom of priests completely unlike any other nation in the world. And certainly at some level, the nation of Israel says here now through their leaders, but we want to be like everyone else. We don't want that kind of a king that has a few number of horses, a limited size in his army. We want a king full of might and strength that will fight all of our battles, is what they said to Samuel. Do you ever wonder if the people of God today, the church of Jesus Christ, might also have a aversion to holiness? This, this call to be distinctly different in the world? This winsome witness to the reality that Jesus Christ is creating a kingdom, a people for his own possession, that doesn't look like anything out there. That it's oddly compelling, this life that we're called to in Jesus Christ. So, those first four things, our trust may be more in a method than the maker. Our sinful requests may be answered. Our rationality may be wrong. Uh, We might have an aversion to holiness See, fifthly, and finally, no doubt, as this is a gospel story after all, our need for a king, our need for a king. And notice what the Lord says through Samuel in verse 18. In that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So, you know, the story ends here in chapter 8 with this sense of uncertainty. A monarchy is evidently established, but we don't know who the monarch is going to be. We don't know how it's going to go, but if you know your Bible well. It doesn't go terribly well for the nation of Israel, does it? It seems to be generation after generation just descending further down into darkness and iniquity and separation from God. You're going to cry out for me because of your king, whom you have chosen, and I'm not going to listen You know, there was another day so far in the future, wasn't it? When God's chosen king from the line of David, Jesus Christ, he stands before Pilate. You remember what Pilate asked him? Are you the king of the Jews? 
And what did Jesus say? My kingdom, it's not of this world. For if my kingdom was of this world, that my servants would be fighting for me. But he says, my kingdom, it's not of this world. What's he saying? I'm God's chosen appointed king. That's not like all the other kings of the nations where they take. What does the Lord Jesus Christ do? But give. Where Israel wanted a substitute king. What does God do in his divine love and grace for people like you and me? He gives us a substitute king. A king after his own heart. The very king that we must cry out to. The very king that we have the assurance of his love and grace and compassion that when we cry out for him, what will God do? He promises to listen. This is a story of a king. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us grace in the midst of our failings this evening, that we who so often long sinfully to be like the world, to not be distinct from the world, ways in which we have rejected your leadership, perhaps even this week we come to you with the eyes of faith, even now trusting in the intercession of our King of Kings, Jesus Christ, knowing that his blood is perfect, that it covers our sins that his rule is glorious and kind unto us. And so help us, we pray, to submit to his leading this night, to serve him this week with all diligence and gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we respond to our hymn, or respond to the sermon with our hymn of response, printed there on page three of your bulletins. All glory be to Christ our King.